This is Yudah Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This coming Shabbat is the eighth day of the month of Nisan, the day the two Eliyahs, Eliyahu Pitsuri and Eliyahu Hakim, were executed in Cairo for the assassination of Lord Moyne. Lord Moyne was the highest-ranking British official in the Semitic region, and his assassination was one of the most daring and courageous acts during our almost 10-year anti-colonial struggle. So in honor of the upcoming Yerzeit, I've decided to share a class I taught at Mohon Mir roughly a decade ago about not only the two Eliyahs, but really about all those young Jewish fighters executed by the British regime. Most of the ideas that I gave over in this class are based on the Maharal of Prague Sefer Netzach Israel, and were clarified for me by two of my teachers, Eli Yosef and Rabbi David Aaron. Listeners might also notice that I use the term Zionist in this class very differently from how I generally use it today. I often acknowledge that I used to use the term as a synonym for Jewish liberation, and that's very much how I understood it back when I taught this class. I also want to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at the Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, you can support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and hitting the donate button on the menu bar up top. Please keep in mind that we are 100% listener-funded, and we don't want that to change. So your support is very much appreciated. And if you're currently unable to contribute to our work financially, doing something as simple as sharing episodes of this podcast with your friends or leaving a positive review can be incredibly helpful in empowering us to expand our reach. And if you're interested in checking out the show notes for this episode, you can do so by going to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 74. And now, without further ado, here's my class from 10 years ago on the Olea Gardom, with a unique focus on the story of the Tuileyouts. So we already spoke about curing the heart, and that essentially the Jewish people acquired a heart of stone uh, at the time of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, where the intellectual Jewish leadership of Europe traded their national identity in exchange for civil rights in the countries they lived in. That was essentially what happened in order to sacrifice their national identity as Jews. They disconnected the heart from the mind. The heart grew numb. And as a result of growing numb, the heart developed into a heart of stone. And the prophet Yechezkel, in the 36th chapter of the book of Yechezkel, talks about how part of the redemption process, part of the process of the Jewish people being brought back to our ancestral homeland is a heart transplant, that God takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And the Maharal of Prague in Netzach Israel talks about how the Jewish people were not exiled to the four corners of the earth, but rather to the five corners of the earth, meaning the four directions, north, east, south, west, plus the middle. The middle being Zion. The middle representing the potential to reunite the Jewish people in our homeland. Now that power to unite is a potential power, not an active power, meaning that it exists as a potential power. It's essentially a magnet. So we're saying the center, Zion, is a magnet, and it magnetizes our hearts. But it can only magnetize a heart of flesh. So when the Jewish people have hearts of stone, meaning when the Jews of Germany regard themselves as Germans with a Jewish religion, and when the Jews of France regard themselves as Frenchmen with a Jewish religion, they have hearts of stone. They're not responsible. 
to their brothers. They're not sensitive. They're not emotionally mature. The heart is numb. The heart is a heart of stone. It cannot be magnetized back to Zion. But when a Jew begins to genuinely care about his brothers, to the point that his caring is an empowering caring, and we'll talk about that, a, a love that's a courageous love, an active love, a love that pushes him to take responsibility, his heart becomes a heart of flesh, and when the heart becomes a heart of flesh, it can be magnetized, it can be attracted back to Zion, and that person becomes what we call a Zionist. Okay? That is essentially how somebody becomes a Zionist, when they have genuine compassion for their brothers, they begin to identify as Jews, and they're brought back to the land of Israel. Now that is essentially how you cure the heart. And Zionism, the, specifically the Zionism of Herzl, came to cure the heart. Like Yeshayahu says, Ki Yerushalayim. From Zion will come the Torah and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. The historic contribution of Benjamin Zev Herzl was not that he taught us the laws of Tzitzit or the laws of Shabbat. The historic contribution of Benjamin Zev Herzl is that he cured the heart, that he restored the base for the entire Torah. Meaning today there are concepts in the yeshiva world which are essentially taken for granted. Concepts like Ahavat Yisrael, love for the Jewish people, Achdut Am, national unity of the Jewish people. These are taken for granted in almost every house of study. But a hundred years ago this was not a focus. And Herzl gave us back this idea of national unity, that we are a nation, we are a people, we have a homeland, right? And that we're brothers. Remember, the essence of Herzlian Zionism, of political Zionism, was brothers have found each other again. Now, according to Rabbi Akiva, the Torah is all based on love. Love is the basis for understanding the entire Torah. Meaning, without love, it's possible to know the whole of Shas, the whole of Halacha, and not understand what it's all about, because you don't have the context. The context is compassion, the context is sensitivity, the context is the story of the Jewish people. So if you have the whole of the Halakha, and the whole of the Torah, the whole of Shas, the whole of the Gemara, without the story of the Jewish people, without that context of compassion and love, then you essentially don't have anything. And that's why the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Luzato, in chapter 19 of Misilat Yesharim, Path of the Just, talks about those who understand the Torah according to its true significance. People who have a burning desire to see God's name sanctified and magnified in the world, the honor of Jerusalem, the honor of the nation of Israel, which is directly connected to the honor of Hashem in the world, or the ideal of Hashem in the world, let's say Hashem's name in the world. Those people, the Ramchal says, merit a certain level of Ruach HaKodesh. The Ramchal says, those people who actually feel pain at the lack of a temple in Jerusalem, the dishonor, the degradation of the Jewish people in the world, and the degradation of God's name in the world. And according to that very same chapter of Yechezkel 36, we see that the Jewish people and God's name are intrinsically connected, that the weakness of the Jewish people, the exile of the Jewish people, is objectively viewed by the nations of the world as the weakness of our God. So to the strength of the Jewish people, the honor and glory of the Jewish people, the achievements and the victories and the triumphs of the Jewish people are viewed as proof of God's strength, right? That's from the perspective of the nations. So he who genuinely feels pain at the lack of Israel's honor 
the lack of God's honor in the world. He's somebody who understands the Torah according to its true significance and merits Ruch HaKodesh, divine spirit, low level, what we call prophecy, in his words. So that's the role of Zionism. And curing the heart, returning that sensitivity to the Jewish people, realigning the heart with the, the mind, the emotion of the intellect, is relatively easy compared to the deeper problem. And the deeper problem predates the heart of stone. The deeper problem is what we'll call the curse of fear. Okay? And this is essentially the curse that has characterized the Jewish people for nearly 2,000 years. And the Maral, again in Netzach Israel, talks about two kinds of fear. There's Ashrei Adam Mifached Tamid, Praised is the man who's always afraid. That's a positive fear. And then there's Pachdu B'Tzion Chataim, which is a negative fear, right? Ashrei Adam Mifached Tamid, Praised is the man who's always afraid. What's he always afraid of? He's afraid to forget his truth. Praised is the man who's always afraid to forget his truth. What does that mean, to forget his truth? He's afraid to sell out. He's afraid to compromise on his values, on his principles, on his beliefs. And a person who is constantly afraid to sell out on his principles and beliefs is somebody who is constantly empowered to fight for those beliefs. Meaning a person who is afraid to sell out to the point that that fear is above all else, he won't crack under torture. Right? He'd be willing to give his life. He'd be willing to go all the way for what he believes to be true. So he's empowered. His fear is a fear that empowers him. So too, we see a similar fear. Yirat Hashem. Fear of God or awe of God. Awe of Hashem. It says in the beginning of Sefer Shmot, in the book of Exodus, that Paro, the king of Egypt, ordered the midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill the male Hebrew babies when they're born, right? Now, the Torah says that Shifra and Pua, who we learn are actually Yocheved and Miriam, they do not kill the babies. Why? Because they fear God. They have Yirat Hashem. So what does that mean? They, they don't kill the babies because they fear God. They know that Paro told them to kill the babies. And they know that if they disobey Paro, they'll probably be either imprisoned or killed. But they still disobey Paro. Why? Because they have Yirat Hashem. So Yirat Hashem is essentially Gvura. Fear of Hashem is essentially courage. It's essentially valor. Because a person who fears God, and when we talk about God, we're not talking about God in the monotheistic sense, that there is some God, this one God somewhere that we're afraid of. No. Awe of Hashem in reality is penentheist. It's the recognition that Hashem is that infinite whole that we are all a part of. He's that timeless, ultimate reality without end that creates all, sustains all, empowers all, and loves all. And the more we realize that everything in existence and beyond existence all exists within that bigger reality, that bigger infinite whole that we call Hashem, the less we have fear of anything mortal, anything human. So if one really understands that everything is one, everything exists within that bigger reality called Hashem, then Paro, the king of Egypt, also exists within that one. Therefore, Paro doesn't have independent power. Paro is an expression of Hashem, just like I'm an expression of Hashem. Just like 
The crocodiles and the Nile are expressions of Hashem. The midwives, the babies, are all expressions of Hashem. Therefore, one who really fears Hashem, it's not really a fear, it's on an awareness of Hashem as His greater, timeless, ultimate reality without end, and there's nothing outside of that. Ein od milvado. And if one truly has that awareness of one, of that oneness, they will not fear Paro, they will not fear Caesar, they will not fear Hitler, they will not fear prison, poverty, even death. Because they fear one. They understand one. And all of those things exist within that greater one. So too with Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, like the midwives, who were willing to die to disobey Paro, because they have that understanding of one, Avraham was willing to go into the furnace, according to the Midrash, when Nimrod threatens him that if he doesn't accept idolatry, he'll go into the furnace. He's willing to go in, into the furnace, not thinking Hashem will save him, but being willing to give his life for what he believes to be true. Because he's afraid to compromise his truth. Now, when a person is that in touch with his inner truth, and we've talked before about breaking it down into me, myself, and I. Okay? Me is a guy named Avraham. Right? But Avraham is a character in a story. The self, Avraham's self, is the soul, like the actor playing the character. And that soul is really a piece of the bigger I, which is Hashem. So Avraham is a character in a story being played by the actor, which is the soul, and that soul is just a piece of Hashem, because everything is one. So the more a person has that knowledge of one, the more a person is living the life of the self and not the life of the me, the life of the actor, not the life of the character, the easier death is, right? One, in numerical value, is Aleph. The moral explains that Aleph is that knowledge of one, that knowledge of Hashem as that timeless ultimate reality without end, that infinite whole that we're all a part of. Now, what's the Hebrew word for death? Met. Right? So when you put met, memtaf together with aleph, that knowledge of one, you end up with emet, truth. So a person who has that knowledge of one and is living the life of the self, living the life of the soul, and is not trapped in this egoistic prison of living the life of the me, getting stuck and thinking all he is is the character in the story and nothing beyond, death is easy for that person because he just goes to truth. Met plus Aleph is just emet, just truth. So it says for such a person, death is like removing a hair from a glass of milk. That's how easy death is, the transition into death. Such a person, it's like removing hair from milk. But for a person who's stuck in the me, for a person who is stuck as the character in the story and doesn't realize that he's really something much greater than that character in the story, death is like removing a nail from a jagged piece of wood. That's how difficult death becomes for that person who's psychologically trapped in the me, in the character, and doesn't realize that his self is actually the soul playing the character and the self is part of a bigger reality that we call Hashem. So, when... Avraham is willing to give his life, it's because he's not willing to compromise his truth. Same thing with Shifra and Pua, who we know to be Yocheved and Miriam, right? The, the mother and sister of Aaron and Moshe. 
they're willing to give their lives to what they know to be true. And like Avraham, they are saved and rewarded. But they didn't do it because they thought they'd be rewarded. They did it because it was the right thing to do. Because for Avraham, death is preferable to accepting idols, to worshiping idols. And for Shifra and Pua, death is preferable to murdering babies. Because who's, who wants to compromise their truth? Meaning there are three things we're commanded to give our lives rather than transgress. Sexual immorality, idolatry, and murder. It's not because these things are rules that we just, you know, we understand that when it comes to those three rules, we have to die rather than transgress. The Torah is not some external coercive rule book that takes us away from our inner nature. The opposite. The Torah is our nature. The Torah teaches us how to live according to our nature. It says the Avot, the patriarchs of Am Yisrael, lived the Torah without the Torah. They didn't have the book, but they lived the Torah naturally, the same way we breathe naturally. The Torah for them is nature. So the Torah for us is the instruction manual on how to express our inner selves, how to really be ourselves. So, just like we don't need the instruction manual to breathe, we breathe on our own because we're healthy enough to breathe without the book telling us to breathe, the Avot, the patriarchs, were able to keep the Torah, keep the mitzvot, as nature. They didn't need the book to tell them. right? But those three sins, idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder, those are three things not that we understand, even though we don't want to, we're supposed to give our lives rather than transgress. They go so against our essence. It would be such a compromise of our inner truths that death is preferable to defiling ourselves through those acts. Okay? So that's the first kind of fear. According to the Maharal, Ashrei Adam Mifachet Tamid. Praise is the man who's always afraid to forget his truth. The second type of fear is Pachdu B'Tzion Chataim. Fear in Zion due to sin. What that essentially means is fear due to not owning up, not taking responsibility. And a person who is afraid to take responsibility will forever remain emotionally immature and will be paralyzed by his fear. Perfect example of this, by the way. Adam and Chava. After eating from the tree, Hashem comes, confronts Adam. Adam blames Chava, blames his wife. Chava blames the snake. No one's willing to take responsibility. This is also the clear distinction between King Shaul and King David. Both sinned. Both committed transgressions. But when confronted, Shaul tries to make excuses for himself. And David owns up and takes responsibility. So we all sin. Everybody sins. That's part of the story. It's what we do with the sins afterwards that really counts. Whether or not we're willing to take responsibility. Whether or not we're willing to own up. So somebody who's afraid to own up is forever emotionally immature and he's paralyzed by his fear. Right? It's the complete opposite of the positive fear. So this is the negative fear, and this is the fear that essentially characterizes the Jewish people during the exile. Now, the Maral teaches that the story of Tishabav is essentially the story of insensitivity. And we see this in the story of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa. Now, Kamtsa was invited to a banquet, but the invitation accidentally went to a man named Bar Kamtsa. Now, at this banquet, were the important influential Jews of the generation, the high-class priests, like the upper-class Kohanim, the great rabbis, Chazal, the sages, uh, the influential wealthy Jews, 
they are all at this banquet, but the host of the banquet hates Barkamtsa. And Barkamtsa thinks when he receives this invitation by mistake that the host wants to make amends, that all is forgiven. So he shows up to the banquet, and when the host sees him, he says, what are you doing here? Get out. Barkamtsa says, wait, I'll pay for my, my food. Please don't embarrass me in front of all these people. Host says, no, get out. Please, I'll pay for half the banquet. No, get out. Please, I'll pay for the entire banquet. No, get out. Barkamsa is thrown out in front of the most influential Jews of his generation, including the great rabbis, none of whom try to intervene to help Barkamsa. None of them feel that they have to step in and stop this Jew from being humiliated. Now, we know retroactively that the great sin of that generation was Sinar Chinam was hatred between Jews, was insensitivity between brothers. But the story of Kamtsa and Bart Kamtsa is proof that the great rabbis of that generation were probably unaware that that was the sin of their generation. Just like there might be a great sin of our generation that we're not conscious of today, we're not sensitive to today. And maybe a hundred years from now people will talk about our generation, they'll talk about the great sin of our generation. But we're not sensitive to it. And so too, it looks as if the rabbis of that generation were insensitive to the sin of their own generation. So they allow Bar Kamtza to be humiliated. And Bar Kamtza sees uh, the great rabbis of Israel are willing to allow him to be humiliated. So he goes to the Romans and he tries to incite the Romans against Jerusalem. And he takes a sacrifice. He gets the Romans to give him an animal. Telling them that... In the temple, the Kohanim will not sacrifice this animal for the Romans, will not sacrifice this animal for Caesar because they're planning to revolt. And the Romans give him the animal to prove it. He brings the animal and he blemishes the animal on the lip in a place where according to the Jewish people, the sacrifice is blemished and according to the Romans, it would be a kosher sacrifice. And he brings it to the temple and at the temple, the rabbis have trouble deciding what to do. They're paralyzed. Right? Their insensitivity to the feelings of a fellow Jew led them to paralysis in the face of a challenge. Right? Their insensitivity breeds fear. And they don't know whether they should sacrifice or not sacrifice. They don't know if they should kill Barkamsa or not kill Barkamsa. And it says that according to the false modesty of the rabbis, Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, what's false modesty? False modesty is when a person says, like Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, Who am I to save Israel? Who am I to be the Savior of Israel? So what does Hashem do then? Hashem tells him, put your hand in your cloak, right? And he gets tsarat, like leprosy, on his hand. And then he realizes what he said was wrong, and he's cured, and he goes and saves the Jews. But modesty is not to say, who am I to save Israel? Modesty is to say, who am I not to? Who am I not to save Israel? And you have to think about this because we were all chosen to live in this generation specifically, which is one of the most amazing chapters in the history of our people. Really. We could have been born 300 years ago. And how do we live 300 years ago? The goal of life may not have amounted to more than survival and being religious. You know, keeping Shabbat, Kashrut, Tefillin, whatever. And... Surviving, not letting pogroms take us or our families, whatever. And we also, by the way, could have been born in the future. We could have been born into a generation 
where there's already a kingdom of Israel and a Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem and world peace and harmony and the whole world recognizes the oneness of Hashem and is sending their diplomats to, to Jerusalem every Sukkot to learn Torah from us. Right? We could have been born into that generation. But we're born specifically at a time in history when there is a Jewish state in the land of Israel. There's a Hebrew language again. There is a Jewish army again, a Jewish flag, a Jewish government over the land of Israel. But yet nearly the entire international community is trying to take our land from us. Meaning we were all chosen to be born into one of the most amazing and important chapters in the history of our people. And I'm optimistic that this story is going to work itself out and that it's going to end with triumph and peace and blessing for the world. And there's going to be a kingdom of Israel and there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem and the world will recognize the oneness of Hashem. But like Mordechai said to Esther, the Jews are going to be saved. The question is whether or not anyone will remember you. Our goal is not to save the Jews. It's not to save the world. Jews will be saved, the world will be safe. Our goal is to be the most central characters in the biggest story possible. Our goal is to want to participate in that story to the extent that we can. To be part of that story, to be part of the struggle. That's what we're here for. So we say that the, the curse of exile is fear. Fear that results from insensitivity. And the Maharal explains that fear is the klipa of love. Fear is the shell of love. You have to look at love being the fruit and the peel of the fruit being the fear. And the thicker the peel, the less a person can love. And the more love a person has, the less fear they'll have. Fear is the opposite of love. Meaning, the moral says right in the beginning of Netzach Yisrael that the knowledge of the opposites are one. Meaning, love and hate are not opposites. Love and hate is essentially one power that's channeled in different directions. We say, Ohave Hashem Sinura, right? David says in Tilim, Ohave Hashem Sinura. Those who love Hashem hate evil. But it's one emotion, one force, channeled differently. The opposite of love, the klipa of love, is fear. Pachtu betzion chataim. Fear and irresponsibility. Fear and selfishness fear that results from selfishness essentially because the more a person is concerned with himself his me really his the character he plays the less he can care about other people and the more he's afraid to risk right somebody who really loves has a courageous love meaning the more you love a person the more you're willing to sacrifice for that person the more you love an idea the more you love a country the more you love your principles, the more you're willing to sacrifice. Somebody who really loves somebody else is willing to go out of his way for that person. And if you really love somebody, maybe you're willing to not study for an exam and fail an exam in school in order to help that person. And if you love them a little bit more, maybe you're even willing to sacrifice your academic career altogether for that person. And if you love them a little more, maybe you'd even sacrifice, ruin your professional career for that person. And if you love them a little more, maybe you'll sacrifice all your money. You'll be willing to make yourself poor, impoverish yourself for that person. And if you love them a little more, maybe you're willing to break the law and go to jail for them in a serious way. And if you love them a little more, maybe you're willing to give your life. Meaning somebody who loves somebody else 
is empowered by that love. Real love breeds courage. Real love destroys fear. And the more a person loves, the less they can fear. So we were essentially, we weren't fully cured, but we were partially cured of this curse of fear by 12 educators. The Olea Gardom. Those who ascended the gallows. Their names were Shlomo ben Yosef, Eliyahu Hakim, Eliyahu Petsuri, Eliezer Kashani, Yechiel Dresner, Mordechai Al-Kachi, Dov Gruner, Meir Feinstein, Moshe Barzani, Meir Nakar, Yaakov Weiss, and Avshalom Chaviv. Twelve boys who the British Empire, when they occupied our homeland, sentenced to death by hanging. And these were educators. These are those who loved to the point that they were able to cure us of the curse of fear. Now, the first to declare war against the British Empire, the first to call the British the occupier, the enemy of the Jewish people, was Yair Stern, Avraham Stern, known as Yair. And Yair said that a freedom fighter is not somebody who fights to be free. A freedom fighter is somebody who fights because he's already free. And because he's already free, he's able to fight. Now, some of these boys were his students. Let's start with the two Eliyahu's. Eliyahu Hakim, Eliyahu Petsuri. Two boys with the same name who couldn't be more different. Eliyahu Hakim, the son of a wealthy, traditional Sephardi family in Haifa. 17 years old, likes to wear designer clothes and party at the hottest clubs. And when he joins the underground, at first he's not taken seriously and he's forced to prove himself by smuggling weapons. And eventually he proves himself not only as a dedicated member of the underground, but also as the best marksman, the best shot with a pistol in the Lechi, in the Lachamecha Rut Yisrael, in the fighters for the freedom of Israel. Now Eliyahu Petsuri, a little bit older, is his opposite from a poor Ashkenazi family that moves around the country. A sickly boy, not as socially popular, much more intellectual, we'll say, than uh, Eliyahu Hakim. He also joins the underground, he's also a member of Lehi, and he's recognized as one of the most articulate spokespeople for Lehi's anti-imperialist revolutionary ideology. So both these boys are selected to travel to Cairo in order to assassinate Lord Moyne, the highest ranking British official in the Middle East. Eliyahu Hakim is selected for his marksmanship and Eliyahu Petsuri is selected in case they get caught that at their trial he should be responsible to articulate Lehi's struggle for Jewish independence to the world. They go to Cairo, they succeed in assassinating Lord Moyne, they escape on bicycles, they're pursued by an Egyptian police officer on a motorcycle, and they're caught because they refuse to shoot the Egyptian. Because their struggle is not against the Egyptians, their struggle is against the British. And they see themselves and the Egyptians as indigenous victims of British imperialism in the Middle East. They view the Egyptians as their potential ally in a regional struggle against British imperialism. They're put on trial, and at the trial, Eliyahu Petsuri succeeds in articulating 
the Zionist cause to the point that you have Muslim Egyptian university students protesting for their freedom. Both are sentenced to death, and before they ascend the gallows, the, uh, the rabbi of Cairo comes to do a confession with them. And Eliyahu Hakim, from a traditional family, does a confession, but Eliyahu Pitsui refuses, saying he's not a hypocrite. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. Therefore, he's not going to do vidui. Both put on the red death row jumpsuits, and Eliyahu Hakim, who used to wearing very fashionable designer clothes, says these are the finest garments I've ever worn. And as they approach the gallows, the hangman, sees them, and the hangman asks, what are you laughing at? What are you smiling at? And Eliyahu Hakim answers, we're smiling at the next generation who will see a Hebrew flag over Jerusalem. Now when a person is not living in the level of the me, living in the level of the klal, the goal is not whether the me lives or dies. I'll give you an example. There's a Midrash that Hashem says to Avraham, your children have sinned. Okay, God punished them. God goes to Yaakov. Children have sinned. Okay, do what you got to do. Punish them. Hashem says he doesn't like the answer of the old man, Avraham, or the young man, Yaakov. So he goes to the middle. Yitzchak. Your children have sinned. And Yitzchak says, well, how much have they really sinned? I mean, they're only really accountable from 20, and they live, let's say, at 120, and half that time they're sleeping, and it doesn't seem like there are many sins left. I'll tell you what, you take half, and I'll take half, because I was a sacrifice for you. The power of Yitzchak, the power to laugh, laugh at the future, is the power to sacrifice oneself for the greater good. One who is willing to sacrifice himself, can laugh at the future. Now, I grew up with a lot of different people, Irish guys, Italian guys, Hispanic guys, black guys in New York, and every one of these guys has a soul. Every Gentile we know has a soul, not the Jewish people. The nation of Israel shares a soul called Klal Israel or Knesset Israel. One giant soul that manifests itself in this world through millions of bodies in space and time called the Jews. Right? But we're all part of that one. Right? So that's why when the Torah says it's forbidden for a Jew to take revenge against another Jew, the question is asked in the Jerusalem Talmud, how could, like it's natural to take revenge of somebody's. So the Jerusalem Talmud in Nidarim brings a story of a guy who's cutting uh, meat or vegetables, whatever, and he slips and cuts his hand. So the Talmud asks, does the hand that was cut now pick up the knife to take revenge against the hand that cut it? That'd be ridiculous, because you know that both hands are part of the same body. So too, a Jew taking revenge against another Jew is ridiculous. Because at the roots we are one. Every Jew is just a branch of that bigger tree called Klal Yisrael, that giant soul that manifests itself in this world through millions of bodies. And the more conscious we are of that, the more we actually live on the level of the Klal, the level of Knesset Israel, the level of Jewish history and Jewish destiny, the more we can laugh at the future. That's the power of Yitzchak, the power to laugh. 
So Eliyahu Hakim says we're laughing at the next generation who will see a Hebrew flag over Jerusalem. They both sing Hatikva and they ascend the gallows. The next day the hangman goes to his physician, his doctor, who happens to be a Jew, and says for 20 years I've been an executioner, but only yesterday for the first time do I feel like a murderer. Please beg your Jewish God to forgive me for what I've done. 30 years go by. 1975, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin makes a deal with Egypt that involves bringing the two bodies of the Eliyahu's back from Cairo to Jerusalem to be buried on Mount Herzl in a military ceremony. And the chief rabbi of Israel at the time, or one of the chief rabbis of Israel at the time, Ravavadi Yosef, eulogizes the boys, comparing them to Shimon and Levi, saying they went out holy and they came back pure. But at the same time, the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Jacobowitz, criticizes, condemns the state of Israel for giving two terrorists a military burial. And here we see the clear distinction between the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of England. The chief rabbi of Israel is the chief rabbi of the Jewish nation. The chief rabbi of England is the chief rabbi of the crown. Meaning the chief rabbi of England is not necessarily the chief rabbi of the Jews of Britain, but he's a servant to the crown. And therefore he becomes the Jewish mouthpiece for the British national agenda. Now there's a machloket, not only, there's a disagreement, not only, between the opinions of the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of England, but even the very concepts of what it means to be the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of England. And that machloket, that disagreement, is decided actually by Hashem. Because in 1975, when they opened the coffins to identify the bodies of the two Eliyahu's, they had seen that the two boys had not decomposed. That their fingernails, their facial hair, everything was exactly as it was 30 years earlier when they were executed. And it says in three places in the Gemara that the Harugei Malchut, the martyrs of Israel, death cannot touch them. Death cannot touch them. And this wasn't the first time we've seen this in our history. It, after the fall of Bar Kokhba's revolt against Rome at Betar, over 100,000 Jewish warriors lay dead. And the Romans made a law that we were not allowed to bury this dead. We were not allowed to bury the fallen of Betar, the soldiers of Bar Kokhba. So for years, the bodies of these Hebrew warriors lay across Betar, and eventually we, we were able to bury them. But in all the years that we weren't allowed to bury them, they had not decomposed. And the fourth blessing in the Bekat Amazon, the grace after meals, is actually thanking Hashem for that miracle, that these bodies had not decomposed. So we see that those martyrs of Israel who, who are killed in battle, fighting for the Jewish people, Death cannot touch them. Their self does not even have to come back in another me. They don't have to be reincarnated. They just go back to the eye. They go to the highest levels of heaven and spend eternity just oneness with Hashem. Right? Even Eliyahu Betzuri, who refused Vidui because he's an atheist, he didn't believe in God, he didn't want to be a hypocrite. It's objective, it's not up to him. He died fighting to liberate Jerusalem for the nation of Israel. And therefore, whether he believes in God or doesn't believe in God, 
he doesn't have to return. He's not decomposing. He goes to the highest levels of heaven. Now we see Mayor Feinstein and Moshe Barzani. The two Eliyahu's, they're executed in Cairo. Most of the other Oleh Gardom, the educators who break the nation of fear, executed in Akko. But you have these two boys, Mayor Feinstein and Moshe Barzani, who are scheduled to be executed in Jerusalem. And they refuse to allow Jerusalem to be defiled with their execution. And they have their comrades from the Lechi and the Etzel. Remember, Mayor Feinstein is from the Etzel, the Irgun Tzvailumi, and Moshe Barzani is from the Lechi, the Lochomei Yisrael. They have their comrades smuggle them grenades inside oranges. And their plan is to die like Shimshon Gibor, to die like Samson. That when the British go to execute them, they're going to blow themselves up with the British. But there's a problem. The prison rabbi comes to comfort them the night before death, the night before their execution, but is inspired by them. So inspired by the gvura, by the courage of these boys, and by the happiness they have for being able to give their lives for the liberation of their people. And the rabbi insists that he will return the next day to witness their execution in order to inspire the youth of Israel with tales of their heroism in the face of death. Now they have a problem. They don't want to blow up the rabbi. But they also don't want to tell the rabbi their plan. So they have to decide what to do. And they decide that even though they can't blow themselves up with the rabbi in order to kill the, uh, the British, they also can't let the British execute them. They're not paralyzed by fear. They don't have Pachtu B'Tzion Chataim. They have Ashrei Adam Mefachet Tamid. They're empowered by their fear of forgetting their truth. And they decide they're going to blow themselves up in the jail cell and not allow the British to take their lives. And they sing the Adon Olam, which ends, Adonai li velo ira. Hashem is with me, I will not be afraid. They put the grenade between their hearts, and they blow themselves up. And with every one of these deaths, the Jewish people are more and more liberated from their curse of fear. And you see, it began with guys like Yair Stern, who declare war against the British, but the majority of the Jewish people don't even understand what he's talking about. The concepts that he's saying to the nation are so foreign. It was like a foreign language, talking about liberation and revolution, and the British are occupying our homeland, and therefore they're the enemy. This was foreign. Nobody could understand this. But every time one of these boys goes to the gallows, gives his life for the Jewish nation, the Jewish people are freed from their captivity of fear. To the point that now you have the youth, after Mayor Feinstein and Moshe Barzani, the youth are clamoring for action. Not just the youth in the Lechi and the Irgun, but the Haganah. They want action and the political leaders of the Jewish people in Palestine cannot contain them. They have to give them channels. They have to find expressions for that need to act. And the last three, Mayor Nakar, Yaakov Weiss, and Avshalom Chaviv, sentenced to death by the British, Avshalom Chaviv, after hearing the sentence that he's going to be hanged, that he's going to be executed, responds with the Shechianu prayer, thanking Hashem for the opportunity to give his life for the liberation of his people. And he is no longer afraid. Dawn has broken. And these boys came to cure the nation of fear. Now, 
Rabbi Akiva had gone with three of his friends to Mount Scopus to look at Horabite. And they see foxes emerging from the Holy of Holies. And the rabbis begin to cry, except for Rabbi Akiva, who begins to laugh. And the rabbis ask him, Akiva, why are you laughing? And he responds, why are you crying? They say we're crying because the prophecy has come true, that foxes are emerging from the Holy of Holies. Why are you laughing? He says, I'm laughing because I know that if the prophecy that said foxes are emerging from the Holy of Holies will come about, then certainly the prophecy that says children will again play and laugh in the streets of Jerusalem will come about. Now that's all very well and good, but those rabbis could have said to Rabbi Akiva, there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. Now that we see foxes coming out of the Holy of Holies, maybe you should cry. When the prophecy comes true, that children are again playing and laughing in the streets of Jerusalem, then you laugh. But Rabbi Akiva is able to laugh because of the power of Yitzchak. He's able to laugh at the future. He's able to laugh at the future because in his heart and in his soul he's revolting against the reality that foxes are coming out of the Holy of Holies. He's revolting against the reality that Rome rules over Judea. And because in his soul and in his heart he's already revolting against the reality that Rome rules over Judea, he goes and does two things. Number one, he gives his wife, Rachel, a piece of jewelry called a Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, a Jerusalem of gold. And then he goes and takes that revolt in his heart and he turns it into reality. He becomes a spiritual leader of the Bar Kokhba revolt, a revolution against the Roman occupation of our country. He becomes the arms bearer of Bar Kokhba. He leads a revolution against one of the mightiest empires on earth to free our country which ultimately fails. And as we already said, the Bar Kokhba revolt is put down in Betar with over 100,000 warriors killed. And Rabbi Akiva and many of his comrades are hunted for public execution. The Torah is outlawed. But the Rambam still teaches that Rabbi Akiva was right. That that's how you judge Mashiach, Bar Kokhba. Not that Rabbi Akiva could have been right that Bar Kokhba was Mashiach, but that that's right. When you see a guy able to do those things, you support him. When you see a hero of Israel trying to advance a revolution, you get behind him. And that's exactly what Rabbi Akiva did. Because he had the power of Yitzchak. He had the power to laugh. Now, between 1948 and 1967, the majority of Israelis were essentially satisfied with having a state, even though it was a truncated state, in small borders, without Jerusalem, without Shechem, without Betel, without Hebron, without Shiloh, without the heart of our country, without Jerusalem. And when I say Jerusalem, I mean Jerusalem between the walls. You know, a lot of people look at the War of Independence or the War of 1948 as a war in which we won. We didn't win that war. We survived that war. And survival is not victory. You can't say we won a war if at the end of that war we don't have Jerusalem. And this is the essential difference between looking at the Jews as an object with a problem versus looking at the Jews as a subject with desires. The majority of Zionists viewed the Jewish people as an object with a problem. That problem could be anti-Semitism, persecution, security threats, terrorism, uh, nuclear Iran, whatever you want to call that problem. Zionism has to cure that problem. 
but there were two groups in Israel, specifically the students of Rav Kook and Lehi, who did not view the Jewish people as an object with a problem. They viewed the Jewish people as a subject with desires. And those desires include Jerusalem, and Shiloh, and Beit El, and Hebron, and Shechem, and Aza. And they did not see the war of 1948 as a victory. And between 1948 and 1967, these groups are not satisfied with the Jewish state and truncated borders. They want to advance a revolution. They want Jerusalem. But they're the minority. The majority of the Jewish nation simply doesn't care. But then in 1967, a woman named Naomi Shemer ascends to Mount Scopus, the very place that Rabbi Akiva went. She breathes the same air as Rabbi Akiva and looks at Jerusalem, looks at Harabayat, just as Rabbi Akiva had. And she's inspired to write a song, a sad song, called Yushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, where she laments the fact that Jerusalem is not in our hands, that Jerusalem is divided. And this song becomes the most popular song in Israel. And it influences the nation until the nation actually wants Jerusalem. That the emotional maturity of the nation of Israel rises, that we become sensitive. And as soon as the nation becomes sensitive, as soon as the nation is influenced by this song, history opens a door. And the nation of Israel goes out to war. And on their way out to battle for Jerusalem, the paratroopers write the last verses of the song. And Yushalayim is liberated and we're no longer afraid.